very thankful for all of God's goodness. And I just appreciate so much the opportunity uh, to be here with you and to and to share in uh, these sessions. I will be leaving late this afternoon. I hope to be in on, on uh, Dr. Dickinson's session. Um, we've been dear friends for many, many years. In fact, the Lord thrust us into this kind of study about the same time. He was the head of the theology department at Moody Bible Institute, and I was a pastor of the Judson Baptist Church in Oak Park, and uh, that sort of developed our friendship, and uh, he's been a very valued friend and uh, co-laborer in the, uh, assisting and helping people. Now, you've been uh, distributed a handout, and I want to say just a word about that. As I was looking through the notes this morning, I noticed that they were just not as complete as they should be on the basic outline that we'll be looking at as the Lord gives us time. And uh, so you'll want to look at that side of it. But I was especially concerned that you have the other side, a doctrinal prayer to break generational curses of evil. This is a very, very important document. And um, I would urge you, uh, this one happens to be written with a view to my own evidences in my family lineage of some generational strongholds. You may add your own um, uh, list to those that you see in your family lineage. Uh, in the middle of that second paragraph, you'll, in, I mentioned, in my own family, I've recognized the existence of evil strongholds evidenced by anger, resentments, greed, pride, fear, emotional illness, and violent death. Uh, that's been a very marked uh, uh, characteristic in our generational lineage. A number of violent deaths, including my own parents, as I mentioned last night. And uh, so as we have sought to protect our family lineage, we use this uh, not just once, but numerous times as we watch over our children and our grandchildren. And so I would urge you to uh, utilize this. Read it aloud. And um, let it, of course, represent your own intercession, but also use it for uh, uh, the protection of your uh, family lineage. Um, I want to read some scripture, which will sort of give us the setting for this whole uh, thought. Turn to the book of Exodus. Uh, we sh nobody should talk about uh, this problem of generational uh, transference and generational issues without reading these verses. They're rather startling to some people, and yet there's something very beautiful about it, too. Uh, this is where the giving of the law, beginning with verse 4 in Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself an idol, 
in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. We were hearing about idols in the last session, and that is a unique open door for powers of evil uh, to uh, trouble us. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And this is the startling part of the generational lineage. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, that is something, if you go to the commentaries, you will find very, very little written about this subject. When I wrote my book, Raising Lambs Among Wolves, where I at least uh, in a beginning way tried to talk about this whole issue, um, I just finally gave up uh, commentaries that tried to really deal with this issue. And I called my friend Warren Wiersbe, who's probably the most wide-read uh, Christian that I know of, and uh, uh, Warren uh, told me, he said, Mark, there just isn't much at all. For some reason, people have passed over this issue. They've avoided it. And I really don't know why, because it's not just set forth in this text, but a number of other texts. But the second part is the exciting part. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And uh, that's the heritage we all want to build in our generation. And I've been determined to watch over my family, to carry on some of the blessings that have come to me from previous generations, and to seek to be um, a protector and a covering for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I prayed on down the line a little ways, not knowing how soon our Lord's going to come. But it, it's just a wonderful thing to keep the covering of the blessing of God upon your generational lineage. That's an awesome challenge and a beautiful one. Then we turn to the 34th chapter. And by the way, this is such an important chapter because it sort of defines for us what Yahweh means. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but it's certainly uh, worth noting. Moses, of course, has been called by God to come back up to Mount Sinai after he broke those original tablets with the Ten Commandments. And uh, God told him he should come back. And now let's pick it up in verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And this is where it gets a little teary-eyed. As you read it, it just kind of overwhelms you. Then the Lord, that's Yahweh, came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, what an awesome moment this was, the Lord the Lord, and then he defines his name, 
the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's all wrapped up in Yahweh. That's who he is. Beautiful. But he also has a judicious side uh, to his name, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. There you have it again. Moses bowed to the ground at once. I would think he would. It's an awesome moment. Oh, Lord, if I've found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us, although this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't look at some New Testament words on this same subject. So turn with me uh, to the book of First uh, Peter chapter 1. Um, this is one of the New Testament clearer portions that deal with this whole subject of generational issues that if you're going to counsel the spiritually oppressed, you absolutely need to have understanding about this because inevitably it's going to come up. Many times the demons will bring it up. They will say, well, we've had claim on this family for 500 years. And who are you to tell us we don't have any right? And that's kind of a startling thing. Uh, but I've had them be just that bold to me. And most counselors who've worked with uh, seriously demonized people have. Now in uh, chapter uh, 1 of First Peter, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And here's where, oh, by the way, I was so thrilled uh, that um, Marcus Warner taught us so well on the flesh. I tried to teach yesterday, and somehow it just never seemed to. Even the equipment rebelled. But uh, we got through it. And... Uh, but uh, that was tremendous teaching this morning, and I was so thrilled to hear it. But here we read, Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And you see, God is not finished with what he's doing yet. But when Jesus Christ is revealed, that's kind of the consummation of our salvation as obedient children. By the way, the emphasis on obedience um, is so strong in throughout the New Testament. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that's quite a challenge. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know 
that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. You see, heritage is important. It's important that you understand something about your heritage. And we'll be talking about that a little more as we proceed. But um, uh, know that that flowed to you much influence from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Well, there's some other passages like 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 7, where the faith that Timothy had was tied to his mother and his grandmother. And uh, even in the Old Testament prophets, you will find interesting passages like Jeremiah 14, 20, Daniel 9, 4 through 19, and Nehemiah 9, verses 2 to 37. So that's important material, and I hope you will uh, really look at those passages because it's uh, what we're seeking to deal with. Now I would like for you to take your notes and turn to the F section. That doesn't mean flunk. It means uh, faith and uh, really a lot going for that passage. So I'd like for you to open your notes because it's pretty important what's in here. And um, I think uh, it's something you will want to read carefully. Once again, we have the Telos notes, which is a little more thorough than... Um, what I'll be able to teach you today. I just want you to note that. And then we have quite an interesting study in 1 Samuel 25 about the whole generational issue. What you can do with your generational heritage. Nabal wasted his, Abigail magnified hers, and David multiplied his. You can preach that. And I give you permission to do that if you want. Now, if you'll notice, um, we have, the, this is sort of a prayer that the one I gave you sort of, uh, I think, ought to take priority over that one. Now, you'll notice the practical insights. Uh, this is important. I don't have time to cover this, but let me just say that when we're talking about generational um, sin issues, it's a very sensitive, delicate subject. And uh, there are outstanding Bible commentators who really um, sort of get their back up when they hear us talking like I'm talking to you this morning. And uh, don't argue with people. Just, um, you know, speak out of the truth of the Scripture and the Word. And so this is just a caution of how that you approach this whole issue and um, uh, some suggestions about 
renouncing generational strongholds in your own family. Uh, I find that immensely helpful in counseling people to urge them to make a list of the generational sins that the Holy Spirit will help them see in their own family lineage by looking at their own life, by looking at their parents and grandparents. It's amazing what you can come up with. And uh, so you'll find that section interesting. Then there's section on breaking curses. Now, on an F14, you come to the carpenter prayer. By the way, I just want to speak to those of you who are, car- are uh, counselors and uh, let you know that this is a, an extremely valuable diagnostic prayer. I use this often when I suspect that I'm dealing with somebody who's dissociative, who has dissociative identity disorder, which is usually an outgrowth of satanic ritual abuse. We don't teach about that in this beginning course, but you will learn about it in some of the later courses. And um, uh, many, many times, and what I usually do is have the counselee read this aloud in my presence. And I can't tell you how many times as they have read it, uh, they would just have to stop. They couldn't read it. The kingdom of darkness would so strongly come against them, they could no longer read it. And uh, they just would stop. So, uh, uh, and then sometimes the demonic spirits will just emerge and start cursing you or cursing the person that's reading it. And that, what I usually do is say, if that happens, I say, we'll mark this. We'll come back and talk about it later. You just go on reading. And, uh, and that quiets the situation. And, and usually, then we can go back. And, and uh, the sections where that happened, very significant, because that shows where the ground was given and the enemy was allowed to enter in some um, very strong way. Then on page F20, uh, by the way, the Masonic influence in our nation is is very, very strong. I'll not ask you to slip your hand up how many of you might have Masonic influences in your family. But I know in a group this size, there'd be several. Uh, that's of rather serious consequence because there's so much about the Masonic system that is... Uh, very um, cultish and um, um, entering into oaths and even pronouncing curses on yourself. And all of that somehow needs to be dealt with. This is material that came uh, to our attention a number of years ago uh, from an organization in New Zealand. And if you'll turn to the last page of this, Uh, You'll notice that at the bottom, this prayer is taken from Unmasking Freemasonry, Removing the Hoodwink by Selwyn Stephen. This is good material. And I would say just if you ever, um, maybe in your own personal life you need to use it, but if you have someone who's 
had strong uh, influence and uh, cooperation with the Masonic system of things, you'll be very wise to take them through it. And I would suggest that you sit with them when they go through it because sometimes they really run into problems when they try to renounce some of these areas where they've been, uh, where they have given considerable ground. But I want to talk to you about some very practical, personal illustrations of this problem. We have in our family um, a son-in-law. Some of you may know him. Um, Dr. Hans Fenzel, um, uh, who heads up the uh, World Venture Mission Organization uh, located in uh, Littleton, Colorado. Uh, Hans uh, married our daughter when, uh, or met our daughter when they were both students at Columbia Bible College. Hans went on to seminary in Dallas and graduated in uh, and then received his Ph.D. in missiology from uh, Fuller Seminary. Uh, They were missionaries in Eastern Europe uh, for, I believe, it was about uh, 12 or 15 years. And then Hans was called uh, to be the head of the mission when uh, Dr. Warren Webster resigned. By the way, Dr. Webster just went to be with the Lord about a week ago. And uh, so uh, God replaces, um, you know, those that uh, have had great ministry and brings new voices. I couldn't just but help rejoice as uh, Marcus Warner, uh, with such ease, uses the modern technology. That was weird. (laughs) (laughs) That was... Really, I'd never seen something just like that. And I'm glad he he understands it and can use it. He does a good job with that. But I'd be totally lost. I'm still using the overhead projector approach. (laughs) Well, anyway, Hans was saved um, out of rebellion when he was at at the university uh, down in... um, Uh, uh, Alabama and he was walking down the street a part of the Freedom March putting his hand in the air and uh, the Holy Spirit said to him what do you have in its place Hans? And Hans said nothing, nothing. And before that march was over he said Lord if you have somebody and show me some answers, I'm ready to learn. That very day, um, one of the missionaries associated with Campus Crusade sat down with him, took him through the uh, presentation of the gospel, and he received Christ. And it was marvelously transformed. And that's very significant because uh, he's the son of um, Al Fenzo, who with Werner von Braun came over uh, from uh, Germany after the war uh, to work with, um, uh, with those with him 
in our own rocketry projects here in our own country, which is a fascinating story in itself. But after our children, Hans and Donna, uh, became interested in each other, uh, we were very interested to meet Hans's parents, and we developed a very good friendship. Um, and during the whole process of the wedding and all of that, we became very close. And they'd been to our house a number of times because they were married in our church uh, there in Oak Park. And um, so they invited us to come to Huntsville. And uh, Al promised he'd give us a tour of the Space Museum there if we'd come. And so I had a double desire, not just because of the friendship, but I knew his parents didn't know the Lord. And I knew that every time Hans had tried to approach them, they would just put him down, and, and he was pretty much hopeless about the whole situation. But I knew God was burdening my heart, and so we went, and sure enough, we had a tour of the Space Museum that probably very few people have ever had with this brilliant scientist uh, taking us and showing us all of the intricacies of the rockets and what they could do. And in the process of that, I said to Al, you know, Al, you must wonder about your son and, uh, and about me and about Anita because uh, we have a faith that I think must be a little mystery to you. And I'd be so honored if you and Bridget would give me the privilege of sitting with you tonight. This was the last night we were to be with them. And just let me explain to you so that maybe you could understand what's happened to your son and, and what's the most important thing in my life. And very graciously he said, I'll talk to Bridget and we'll see. And so and sure enough, uh, at dinner that night, Bridget said, Al told me what you said, and we'd really like you to do that. So what an open invitation. But I tell you, when we started, and keep in mind that uh, he was a part of the whole Hitler um, movement in Germany, deeply entrenched in that, uh, both of them thought Hitler was one of the greatest persons they had ever known, even though they didn't appreciate what had happened and uh, the war and all of that. But um, anyway, uh, because of that, I knew we were going to have a battle. So as we, I, I used the Coral Ridge evangelism corrosion approach, and if you know anything about that, it's a very careful, tactful presentation of the gospel. And uh, so as I started to go through that, all of a sudden the hindrances came. Uh, Bridget developed a coughing spell that was just kind of out of control. She couldn't do anything about it. I looked at Anita and she looked at me. We both knew what it was about. And in our hearts we were praying without, you know, any obvious uh, uh, concern. And then the doorbell rang, not once but twice, in a period of about uh, 10 minutes. The phone was ringing. And I tell you, it was just 
kind of chaos. But, uh, you know, we knew what was behind it. The death of six million Jews murdered. Hitler was an occultist. And uh, he tried to bring that influence on all of those who were a part of what he was doing. And that touched their lives. And uh, there were generational sin issues that um, had been in uh, their family, unbelief, embracing of wrong views entirely, a coldness toward anything to do with the church and Christianity. But I'm happy to tell you to make the story complete. As I came to that place where I said, you know, I can't make the decision for you, uh, your son, Hans can't, but um, I'd be so honored if you would let me if you feel God wants you to commit your lives to Jesus Christ, I'd lead you in a prayer and help you. And they looked at each other for just a few moments and, and then they nodded, we would like that. And I was privileged to lead them to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And within a year, Al was with the Lord. He developed a rapid-growing cancer, which took his life. But my, what fellowship we had over the phone as he came close to the time of death. But uh, now, what, why is that so important to me? Well, of course, it meant these two people uh, both would be a part of the kingdom for eternity. But more important, perhaps, than that, <clears throat> they are the grandparents of my grandchildren. And generational issues are involved, generational sin issues. I have watched over my son-in-law and my daughter and each of our grandchildren. And dear friends, God honors that. And I'm happy to share with you that that all four of the grandchildren in that family um, love the Lord and serving him. And uh, two of them are right at Biola now, the twins. And this summer, the granddaughter, and by the way, she's the one I mentioned with the anger problem. Uh, she went as a missionary to Africa. And when she came home, she said uh, to her mother and dad, I love the African people. I think I may go back there as a missionary someday. So God is at work in a wonderful way. They're a tremendous generational blessing. And I should mention at this point <clears throat> that um, uh, the um, generational blessings are already evident. Um, and as you begin to study this whole area of generational uh, blessings. Uh, Bridget's grandfather was a Lutheran evangelical gospel preaching man. And when my son-in-law was walking down the street, don't think the prayers of that great grandfather of his didn't affect that young man who suddenly saw the emptiness 
of the life he was living in rebellion, in drugs, in sin. And he knew there was something different. And God opened his heart to want to hear the gospel. And so generational blessings were flowing. And uh, so it's just wonderful to recognize the importance of that. He completely left uh, Lorena's mother and Lorena before she was three years of age, which often is the story with the occultists. They try to get a child under their control sometime between uh, their birth and three years of age. And they try to uh, sort of take over the mind of that uh, child and uh, begin to uh, program the child for the whole uh, process of the occult movement. Some of those are chosen to be uh, made uh, uh, very useful tools in the hands of the kingdom of darkness. On top of this, she was exposed to that uh, during those years from the time she was probably about one and a half to three years of age. And then she's never had any further overt contact with her father. Her mother uh, was a devout Roman Catholic and she was not just a Roman Catholic, but she was one who engaged in all of the magical things associated <clears throat> with some uh, phases of Roman Catholicism. So that she had a very strange background. And um, yet grace and mercy was at work in Lorena's life. Uh, a 13-year-old a um, young person who was going into high school with Lorena took a very special liking to her and um, took her to her church and personally led her to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. So this girl was um, privileged to come to know our Lord. And then also in the mysteries of grace and mercy, she had no particular way to ever get into Wheaton College, but that's what happened. She graduated from Wheaton College and went on in her education program and has two master's degrees. And it was about maybe four years ago that the Lord in his mercy began to make her realize there were problems in her life for which she had no answers. Even though she had a brilliant mind and the finest of education, uh, the generational consequences of the sin uh, made her very isolated. Um, occult associates, people who were connected with the occult, wherever she was working, whatever she was doing in the education field, these people suddenly would appear. 
And it was obvious they were occultists by the things that they did and, and the, th the things that they had in their offices and so forth. And consequently, she has had a tragic life of alienation from others, isolation, and uh, the constant plaguing of that uh, background has followed her. I'm happy to say that um, she lives in the Chicago area, so Dr. Dickinson and his wife Jean have been very gracious to minister to her. And gradually she's beginning to get free, more and more free. Uh, but when you work with people like that, you often need a process of time, much patience, much prayer. But we're seeing tremendous progress made. And so generational evil is not an impossible thing to overcome. Uh, grace and mercy are much more powerful in setting people free. And that's what we're all about. So I hope that you will understand that. My wife and I, for our 50th wedding anniversary, our three daughters and their husbands got together and decided they would give us a gift of sending us to Germany to visit the historic places of the Reformation. And um, so for about three weeks, we had a trip to um, Germany. And we were privileged to have Thomas Gerlach. Some of you, he's been at some of our biennial conferences. <clears throat> and it was interesting that his father and I were thrust into helping spiritually oppressed people about the same time. He in Germany and I was here in America. And we developed a very good relationship together. But Thomas is a trained theologian and a brilliant historian. So you can imagine the treat we had in visiting Martin Luther's great sites of the Reformation. Um, but what I really wanted to see also was the place from which my generational heritage on my father's side of the family came. I knew it was in Rotenburg, but we had very little information. And we discovered that the Rotenburg that, um, that my family was associated with was a little village near Stuttgart. And so after we had finished the tour of the Reformation sites, Thomas uh, took us to Rotenburg. And um, that was a very moving time in my life because I, I knew that there was a tremendous heritage that had flown into my life from my great-grandfather, William Ludwig Bubeck, who came in the early 1800s to America, but he wasn't saved until a personal worker led him to Christ in New York City. But um, I carry in my briefcase, I think I have it with me, um, a, um, a document that my brother 
who attended a family funeral got to told the story of William Ludwig Bubeck. He was a great Christian. He was a giant of the faith. He was a shoe salesman and had his own shoe business, but his main business was being a Christian. And the whole obituary that my brother had tells the story. So I knew my Christian heritage went back at least that far. But when we got in, in Rotenburg, we didn't know where to go. One of the things that was so strange is even though my great-grandfather came from a family of some uh, 14 children, there was no contact. And we even learned why that was, because anybody that left Rotenburg was considered to be an outcast. They deserted the family. And so they just cut off all contact. And that was the kind of heritage that uh, apparently he lived with because he had come to America. And, um, but we found, i never forget when we went into a, a winery, because that's, that's uh, really a, a country where they grow a lot of wine. And um, so Thomas walked in, and of course the workmen were there. They were gathering the fruit about that time we were there. And, um, and he said, are there any Bubecks here? And a young man, about 19, put his hand up, said, I'm a Bubeck. And of course, that was the beginning of an open door. We got information from him. And I was able to interview a lady who was a Bubeck family member. And we had lots of good conversation. But it wasn't until I went to the cemetery that uh, I was almost overwhelmed. We'd learned that this little village was a very um, a strong supporter of the Reformation. Um, and uh, people were willing to die uh, for what Martin Luther represented in the justification by faith. And so it was a very strong heritage. And the reason we went to the cemetery at the suggestion of this lady was on almost all of the tombstones, they had etched in in the tombstone little words. And I couldn't help but notice how many of the Bubecks had scripture verses. And because Thomas could read the German, we discovered they were verses like, uh, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, and looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. And I was so moved because all of a sudden I understood that my Christian heritage, heritage didn't just go back to William Ludwig Bubeck. It went all the way back to the Reformation. How blessed I felt. How moved I was. And it was a tremendous uh, important thing in my life. Now we need to understand that they're not just generational blessings, as important as that is, but because the scripture is so clear on it, there are generational sin problems that has powerful strength to do evil and to bring uh, 
evil consequence upon our um, children. And that's one thing that impressed me so much uh, about um, the outline that we have of, uh, of that 25th uh, chapter of, uh, of uh, first, first Samuel or Second Samuel. Anyway, um, of um, uh, David and, and Abigail and, uh, and um, oh, his name's out of my mind. Nabal, right. And um, Nabal uh, had a tremendous heritage. He was a, he was a Calebite. Wow, wouldn't you like to have Cable? Caleb in your generational heritage? Yeah, what a tremendous man he was. He stood against all of the spies who, um, uh, who wanted to back away from, uh, from uh, God's promises. And, uh, and then, of course, he, uh, he wanted the mountain. Well, uh, of course, uh, Nabal just despised all of that and uh, walked away from it. And he became a very wicked man. Even though he had that kind of heritage, he wasted his heritage. And what a tragedy that is. And I'm sure it happens more often than, than we know. Uh, but um, anyway, um, I hope that you understand that there are consequences. And as you counsel people, it's one thing you want to look for in their lives is um, perhaps uh, generational iniquity that needs to be dealt with. I think every one of us that's uh, tried to help people get free, we've had to help them deal with that issue because uh, sometimes it's a very powerful thing. But let's come back to the thought that uh, generational righteousness has powerful projections for good. Um, when I was pastoring in Oak Park, a young couple came to our church, Tom and Carol. And uh, they had been Christians only for a short time. He was saved out of a Roman Catholic background and she out of a liberal Methodist background. But they really had transforming experiences with the Lord. I didn't lead them to Christ. They knew the Lord before they came uh, under my um, uh, oversight as their pastor. But um, we had a very close relationship because uh, they uh, somehow were drawn to understand what I was teaching them about the spiritual battles of life and that we could walk in freedom and victory. And um, Tom was a gifted salesman. He, at first, he was just a very prosperous salesman, and then eventually he formed his own company, and and he became the head of the company and a rather wealthy man. But his gift of selling made him an ideal uh, prospect for leading our evangelism explosion ministry, and Tom became the leader of that, and. Uh, that was back in the days when it was just beginning. In fact, uh, D. James Kennedy only had mimeograph notes back in those days. And so we went down uh, to Coral Ridge 
the two of us, and we wanted to take the training uh, right at the source. And uh, that was a very profitable time. But one of the most profitable things was that uh, Tom uh, said to me, he said, Pastor, I've heard you talk about how you pray over your children and um, watch over them to protect them. And um, Carol and I, well, I should back up and tell you that they didn't have any children when they came, and they couldn't seemingly conceive. But one Sunday while Tom was seated in church, the Lord just communicated to him that he was going to have children. And the first one born was a lovely daughter, and the second one born was their son. And so by the time we went down to Coral Ridge, uh, those children were beginning to grow and develop as children. And he said, I would really like to know just how you do that. Would you pray not only for your children, but for mine while we're down there? And so just really delighting to have him interested. And uh, we did that when we had our devotional time each day. And I had no idea how deep that was going into Tom's life. I didn't learn how deep it had gone until uh, long after I'd left that church and uh, uh, was pastoring in another place. And uh, we had occasion to meet together. And uh, Tom shared with me about um, how he, uh, as an outgrowth of that relationship we had in prayer, uh, that he would every night when he'd get home, often after the children had gone to bed because of his selling position, he often had to stay late. And, um, but he would still go into the room and he would pray doctrinally over them. And I was so impressed with what I heard. I said, Tom, would you write that story for me? Because I was just beginning to write Raising Lambs Among Wolves. And I knew it would be important to include that. So those of you who've read the book, you've already heard this story, uh, how he would go into their room and pray over them. Sometimes they'd wake up, and it was kind of a family joke. As far as the kids were concerned, those long, boring prayers, they'd hear their dad praying in their room. But uh, it began to become very important to them, especially as they grew older. Well, they went away to Wheaton College, and, and um, one Thanksgiving, they were home. And the daughter came in where Carol was preparing the food. And she said, Mom, is Dad still going into our room where we've been, even though we're not home anymore and praying for it daily? And Carol said, yes, but how did you know? And she answered with tears, I saw his footprints in the carpet. Oh, how wonderful it is to have footprints in the carpet, bringing blessing to your heritage. Both of them are now married and have their own families and are living for the Lord. And uh, the son is taking over, going to be taking over the business. So it just 
tremendous the heritage of blessings that can come. But I need to um, uh, quickly move on here because our time is rapidly going. You'll notice that we can look at some biblical and natural implications concerning the bringing of both blessings and curses through our heritage or upon our heritage. And um, you'll notice in your notes you have that point. Generational sin makes redemption necessary. By the way, this to me is one of the strongest evidences for this whole generational issue. And that's never made more clear than in Romans chapter 5. And there are just some rather startling statements in there about why we need to be redeemed. And it has all to do with generational sin. Look at verse um, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin. So that through one man, the consequence of um, sin that is enough to send us to hell flowed to us. Uh, I remember when I studied that, when I was <clears throat> preaching through Romans. For some reason, I'd never quite understood that. And somehow I'd always thought that it was my own personal sin that sent me to hell. But it's just stressed over and over in Romans 5. Again in verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even though those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. Notice in verse 15, Many died by the trespass of the one man. I'm stressing that because that's what we're talking about. Of course, the contrast is what the work of Christ does for us. But um, verse 16, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, and verse 19, for justice through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Oh, that's powerful to make you realize the strength of this whole issue of heritage and um, how we're tied to the fall of Adam and what it brought to us. Uh, just cause us to wonder after God's working through all of that to bring us to faith. So generational sin makes redemption necessary. That's a pretty strong point if you uh, want to share with others uh, some of this uh, important truth. The second point, generational sins produce natural disasters for children. Now, this, you don't have to be too smart <clears throat> to look at that and know that's true. Um, we know that when children live in an 
in an atmosphere of uh, sin and corruption and disobedience and wickedness that it takes a terrible toll upon them. And some of you who have are part of this group have experienced that, where your parents abandoned you when you were a little child because of some problem they saw they couldn't handle. And my, the hurt that brings to a little child. And uh, you don't just walk away from that. It takes the healing of God's grace and mercy. It's so important to protect our children. One of the great disasters of our culture is the addiction to uh, drugs, uh, to alcohol, to pornography, to cursing, and smoking, and immorality that our children have to live with. Part of their family. And that has potential for great disaster. They may hate their past home life and yet they're caught in the web of repeating the disaster that surrounds them. There are psychological disasters. Uh, The medical community is very familiar with that. Um, Psychologists and oh my, some of the things that come upon those that have been psychologically abused. I'm thinking of two boys that took a lot of my time when I pastured in Oak Park just because I tried to reach out to them and help them. More broken lives I've never witnessed. Where'd all that come from? From a mother and dad who constantly put them down who said things to them like, you're no good. I don't know why we ever had you. You'll never be anything but a failure. And uh, both parents, I never knew the father, but I knew the mother and I I saw some of that coming against these two young men. The abuse that comes to children from parents' sin in that way is measureless. Thank God that grace can reach through mercy. Both of those young men profess faith in Christ, but they walk through life pretty much with those kinds of wounds. And of course, there are physical disasters that come from the sins of the fathers and mothers. The medical community doesn't call it uh, generational sin, but they give it other names like harmful vices or unhealthy habits. But they know the reality of it, that a mother can't even smoke cigarettes, but what is going to have a negative effect upon her child that she's carrying. And and then we all know about... uh, 
some of the other consequences that come. Alcohol, drug addiction. <clears throat> there are those who have ministry to um, those who have been wounded by being born to uh, addicts of alcohol and drugs. And it, it's not an easy thing to deal with. Physical disasters, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the HIV. The little children are born with AIDS. And uh, they had nothing to do with what gave them AIDS, but they have to live with it. And it's all over Africa today. Wounded, hurting children. We have one granddaughter who wants to spend her life as a missionary ministering in Africa to the um, AIDS children. And I just have to kind of take my hat off to that kind of vision and have to admit I, I really don't know anything about that kind of love, compassion. I'm so grateful it's in the life of a, a granddaughter. And um, so there's great ministry to those. And then there are spiritual disasters. The failure of parents, even though they may be Christians, to lead their own children to Christ. What an awful consequence that is. Uh, one of the great joys of our lives, and I'm sure of many of you, was to pray and watch over our children. We never tried to force them, never tried to, to um, uh, sort of manipulate it, but we just wanted them to be under the influence where they could hear of their own personal need of Christ. And then what a joy to see them one by one come to Christ. I have a rather personal <coughs> involvement with that um, in my own life. I was saved when I was eight years of age, and I remember it so vividly. Uh, I was in vacation Bible school, and the Holy Spirit was just dealing with me powerfully. And, and uh, the closing day, the teacher said that um, anyone there who wanted to confess faith in Christ should just stand up and come to the front. Well, the movement of the Spirit of God was marvelous. You could have heard a pin drop. Several girls got up and went, but no boys. But all of a sudden, I just couldn't sit there anymore. And I remember standing up and my friend, and I was in this one-room schoolhouse in one of those two-seater desks. He snickered as I got up. But it didn't matter. The joy of the Lord just flooded upon this young boy. I knew something wonderful had happened to me. I remember when my mother came to pick us up, take us home. Um, I told her what had happened. My mother's response was so typical. She said, well, Mark, you did that last year. <laughs> and I'm sure I probably did. You know, 
I don't remember that at all because it was something I did probably because the other children were doing it. But when I was eight, God did it in my heart. And it's a wonderful thing to pass on that kind of heritage to your family. Now the next point is the one that's really difficult for a lot of people. The generational sins may introduce spiritual bondage into children's lives. People can accept the fact, yes, there are psychological wounds and physical disasters and environmental disasters and on. But you don't mean to tell me that a little child can be demonized because of the sins of um, somebody in his lineage, someone in his family heritage. And I don't think we should press this too much. I've tried to discuss it a little in um, Raising Lambs Among Wolves, the book that's now called uh, um, The Adversary at Home. But um, uh, it, it, I believe, can be... When I was writing that book, I was thrilled to get G. Campbell Morgan's uh, evaluation of the Mark 9 16 to 22, or actually 16 to 29 passage, because um, it seems to me that there's no way to account for that little child that was so demonized that he would fall into the fire and, uh, and he would have these demonic seizures that our Lord freed him from in answer to the pleadings of the Father. Um, and we can rejoice in that wonderful story. And the Lord's still doing that in, in many, um, many situations. But the bondage, perhaps, had generational overtones. In verses 22 to 29, you remember uh, the Lord Jesus uh, said... Um, um, he kind of rebuked the man for saying, if you can. And uh, Jesus responded, uh, Jesus rebuked him, everything is possible for him that believes. And then the man confesses what well may be his generational sin. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And uh, of course, hopefully, um, there was a tremendous change that took place in the father's life as well as the child. But we need to recognize that generational sin can be cleansed, it can be conquered, and the effects of it can be removed from the family. And that's why we believe this is a very important thing uh, to interject into our whole um, seeking to present a balanced biblical view of the importance of spiritual warfare. And um, I mentioned about um, the application of the truth of Scripture and believing God uh, for the freeing, uh, coming under the covering of our position in Christ and, uh, and beginning to battle for our children and our grandchildren or wherever we see the problem emerging. And I would just urge you, 
to understand your authority as a parent, as a Christian, as a believer, uh, to battle for those under your responsibility to minister to them and to just stand strong. You know, there's nothing worth fighting for like your children and your grandchildren before the throne of God not to get your will done, but God's will done in their lives. And oh, how the Lord honors that. And it's just amazing the stories that could be told about how benefit has come upon children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren by the intercessions of those who understood the battle and began to really take it seriously to heart. Well, we'll kind of bring this session to a close on that note, and it's almost time for lunch. Maybe a question or two. I know I certainly have not covered all the material. Yes? Is it possible that uh, you know, when in the child comes into Yeah, that's a good, good observation. Um, could it be more intense in the child than it was in the father or whoever was in the lineage? that seemed to give the most ground. And let me just say that that's one of the mysteries of um, this whole area of study. Uh, it's not unusual for <clears throat> other children to be born in a family that have no particular evidence of any kind of uh, spiritual disaster in their lives, even though they're under the same uh, lineage, and um, all we can say to that is that uh, that um, uh, God, in His sovereignty, allows that. And there's something about um, the demonic realm that we don't understand. That certain personalities seem to have more receptivity to the work of the spirit realm, and they try to access those people in order to dishonor God, in order to captivate or capture those uh, children and use them for the kingdom of darkness. And uh, so we, that's part of some of what we don't know and understand, perhaps won't until we uh, get to glory. But uh, it is a very real thing. And it's not unusual for the problem to intensify in a particular child, even though the father, as we pointed out, had an unbelief problem, the child's problem was much more serious, at least on the appearance of things. Um, if I understood your question, I didn't hear it too well, but uh, you're concerned about how you would approach a parent where you see uh, there's abuse taking place. Um, very delicately and very lovingly and um, and carefully because um, that's an area of great sensitivity on their part. And sometimes you can do it through reading, sometimes through Bible study approach where you draw them into a personal Bible study where you're seeking to help them understand the difference between 
a loving approach to parenting. Doesn't mean you're not firm and uh, guiding, but it does mean you always uh, treat them in love. One of the truly great stories of my life, uh, which I've um, shared with some of you, is um, uh, I was about 11 years of age when um, I got my last spanking from my father, and um, I deserved it. My father had given me the privilege of driving our family car out into the fields where um, he always put in the spring of the year uh, the chickens that had uh, were being prepared for market and and uh, so he would let me uh, go out and feed the chickens and take care of them and of course like most young children driving a car at 11 years of age was a big deal and uh, I drove too fast sometimes, I'm sure. In fact, I know. <laughs> but uh, it was just a big deal. Well, one time when I came home, my little brother, Ralph, uh, I was eight years older than Ralph, and uh, so he was just a toddler. Just uh, He came out, and he's, uh, when I drove in, and back in those days, we had running boards on the cars. Some of you remember that. And uh, so he jumped up on the running board. And uh, brave Mark put his big, strong arm out and, and uh, around him. And I drove forward, and I drove backward. And my mother saw it. And she, of course, put an end to that pretty promptly. But uh, that night after dinner, my father uh, said, Mark, I think uh, you and I need to have a little private time. And so he took me out to the back uh, gate, and there was, a, there was a strap there that I had put there from the horse I loved to ride. And, and he just conveniently talked to me about what I had done. And, uh, then he neatly folded that strap and applied it to the seat of learning. And I was crying up a storm and really thinking I was suffering much too much. But I remember what a lesson I got when I looked at my father and tears were running down his cheeks. What an impression. That made on me. I never forgot it. And uh, help, <coughs> helped in my whole approach to discipline of my own children. And every child needs discipline. But there's a way to give it that's full of love. So I break down in tears. We better quit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and it's time for lunch. Thank you. Uh,